You're not the only thing in their world. Nothing went way off. Nothing went wrong. Did I screw up the tags or the title or is my thumbnail just completely not resonating? The closer I can be to walk in the shoes of my users, the better PM intuition I tend to have. Having to go through the pain of editing a video, having to go through the process of finishing your live stream and then looking at the analytics and trying to figure out what's going on or having to go through engaging in the comments or getting mixed feedback in the comments like that's something that you can intellectually understand but if you if you've not done it or even like the difficulty of getting your first hundred subscribers i still remember meetings where people were like you just share it out on facebook and you get your first hundred i'm like what are you talking about like <laughs> that is not how it's much harder you have to find this balance between thinking about the overall platform and understanding what you want users to do but also informing it and pressure testing it with the reality what a user experiences their worldview is much broader than your product. My philosophy at YouTube was to try and eat as much of the dog food as I could so that I could experience it. I find that that's true in all the products I worked on. You know, even now with my health stuff, I try and put myself in the shoes of the user and, and go through the, their journeys and, and, and try and live it as much as I can. It's certainly harder. और अमेरिका में रहने वाले सेट आपसे कुछ बात करना चाहते हैं संगीतकार राजस के साथ आपका स्वागत है लूसिड में What's going on people? My name is Sid and welcome back to another episode of Lucid. On this episode, we have Tom Long, a product director at Google who has worked on various products such as the Google Health products and the YouTube Creator Studio. On this episode, we talk about Tom's experiences about building these products that serves billions of users. Along with this, we also talk about why coaching is really important for folks to be further in their career. And finally, we also talk about what, what advice he has for people that are being laid off and to think about their career in 2023. My personal recommendation is that you watch this episode in 1.5x for a better listening experience. Let's start with 2023, right? Like looking back at 2022, uh, what has been like some of your learnings, reflections? How has 2022 been for you? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I would describe 2022 as a bit of a tumultuous year to the extent that it started out as a very bull market, you know, war for talent. Uh, I actually have the opportunity to work with a, a lot of PMs in my day job but also as a product management coach. So I work with a lot of PMs that way. And what's interesting is like the, we started the year with like, oh, how do I pick the right opportunity for me? And, you know, I'm not happy in my current role. Should I look somewhere else? And, you know, it kind of like flipped on its head pretty quickly in the middle of the year to, oh, you know, I just got retrenched or I don't want to get laid off. Um, yeah. or I, I quit my old job and now I thought I could find a new job in a matter of weeks and it's taking a lot longer. So it's definitely been 
a challenging year for a lot of folks out there who went from, you know, um, quiet quitting or being unhappy with their employer to now being in a very different situation where they, they really can't take jobs for, for granted. So the, it went from a, uh, talent market to any more of an employer's market now. Right, definitely. And personally for you, like in your workplace, for you leading uh, products at Google Health, mm-hmm. how has it been there? Oh, it's been, that's been more positive. I, I think uh, we are a bit of a moonshot bet. And I think we had, we were able to hit some very important milestones for the group that, right. um, you know, got us closer to where we want to get. And uh, they were hard and the team really pulled it off. But it was a challenging year because, Mm. you know, you have to execute in an environment where there's so much more uncertainty at the end of the year than the beginning of the year in terms of the world around us. Um, But, yeah, I have to say I was very, you know, ended the year like feeling pretty good. And, uh, you know, we're going to enter 2023 now you know, ready to, to execute on the ne- next level of milestones. Um, but, you know, the back of your mind, you're always wondering, you know, does the macroeconomic environment uh, affect us as well? Yeah, definitely. That is very true. Uh, I want to discuss further about like, you know, your work at Google Health, especially mm-hmm. post the pandemic. A lot of people have uh, taken a keen interest in making sure their health is fine. Especially yeah. in my social circle, there are more people going to the gym, you know, taking care of their fitness. Sure. So uh, as a product manager, like you're always looking at customer insights, trends in mm-hmm. uh, customer behaviors. What interesting patterns or insights have you seen like in the past year or so? You know, I think there's certainly a lot more activity from a class of of uh, individuals that a lot of people call like the worried well. And these are the folks probably that, you know, you know, that are wearing the next generation wearables and they're on their Pelotons Mm. and they're being really careful about sleep and diet and exercise and all the good stuff and meditating. And so I think the pandemic has made that group even more engaged (laughs) Um, but (laughs) when you kind of zoom out and you think about society, that's a very small percentage of the population Hmm. and the rest of the population, I think is probably more focused on, uh, paying for their rent or their mortgage or filling up their tank, uh, for their car and, or trying to make sure that they have enough budget for, you know, other requirements. And so I think, you know, while the pandemic has highlighted the importance of health for a lot of us, it it's still like the fundamental challenge of modern society managing population health outcomes uh, is is still a is still a big challenge. And the pandemic, you know, in some ways it it, it brought health more to the forefront. But, you know, when you think about hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, you know, these are things that have been a problem for a lot of developed economies for a while, and they didn't get any better with the pandemic. 
Um, but they didn't get like dramatically worse. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of things have changed for depending on your perspective, but the fundamentals are still kind of similar. Mm, that's really interesting. And like, I've always been thinking about this, uh, people are generally cautious about like sharing their data in general, like, you know, data privacy mm-hmm. and especially, uh, health related data. Do you think anything has changed there? Like post the pandemic, are people more open to sharing data like with, uh, to tech products, uh, for like, you know, any better use case? Yeah. So I should probably have highlighted this at the top of our conversation, but I, I'm going to speak to you in my personal capacity and not as a mm-hmm. representative of my, right. my employer, um, just as a private product management, uh, professional. Um, so that said, if I think about how people feel about sharing data in general, uh, especially health data, I do think there's more openness to it and probably because there's more of a desire to see the benefits from, right. um, from having this data analyzed or uh, having insights generated that I can use as an individual about my health. So I think um, people are probably more open to considering it. But, you know, understandably, um, they also want to make sure that their data is, is handled responsibly and is only used for purposes that that they've you know agreed to uh, right. and are compliant with you know all the privacy regulations, so that that won't change. But I think people are maybe more open to seeing the benefits of mm-hmm. what they could get out of that data for themselves right. than they might have thought about uh, five years ago. Mm, that is true. That is true. Yeah. Like, as you said, right, like there are more people, uh, using wearables, uh, to make sure that they get the benefits out of it. So, uh, I, I can see that generally in my social circle too. Yeah. And- wearables are definitely something, uh, you see more and more common, especially yeah. with people with disposable income who are kind of open to, to kind of early adopters. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that you don't still don't see as much of that I'm hopeful will change over time is patients and individuals being more plugged into their clinical data, right. you know, uh, because yeah, you know, you get your blood tests and then your PCP says, you know, either everything's looking okay, or there are some things you want to be aware of. But we, interestingly enough, I don't think many people spend as much time learning about that data mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as they do about like yesterday's steps and right. yesterday's steps are important, but also Ooh. like if your triglycerides are way off, like you could mm-hmm. argue that that deserves your attention too. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine in the future, uh, you would think that some of that clinical data will be more mainstream in terms of people's adoption, but it's, it does ask a lot of an individual to suddenly become a biologist or a chemist. And so, um, you know, or, or a doctor. So I think that that's a challenge and opportunity for, for innovation. Definitely. Uh, That's really interesting. So do you think, is it because like people are not more focused on clinical data? Is it because of the complexity of understanding what this data means to you as compared to, you know, just knowing what you like, how many, how many steps you've done, like in the previous days, mm-hmm. or like, is there any other barrier? Yeah. You know, I think 
I think that a lot of the wearable companies have done a great job making the steps and even like the heart rate variability and sleep, they've made it more accessible. And it's, you know, it's kind of has these nice visualizations. There's usually like a little kind of narrative that comes with it and explains why this is important. And you just don't see that as much with like, you know, your A1C results from your blood test or, you know, if you had to have a colonoscopy, like what all the results from that kind of thing. So um, I think part of it is that that clinical data has always been produced primarily for the clinician, for the provider. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, and yeah, you as a patient, you have a right to it. So here's a, here's a printout of stuff that we're not going to really optimize for your consumption. And I think that will probably change if patients uh, respond well and ask for it and, and it's useful to them. But, you know, that's a big leap of faith. Um, You know, it's kind of like financial statements from public companies. Like most people don't consume them. They don't read them very thoroughly or understand them. And, uh, you know, they, they, life goes on for them. Um, so part of it is also, you know, something around incentives where what is the incentive for the patient to really get into their clinical record? Um, you know, in theory, it's to have better health and longer life and higher quality of life, but it's a very long-term investment. You know, Mm. you're not going to get instant gratification from managing your hypertension better. I mean, you'll likely have, you'll, you'll be less likely to have a stroke, you know, years mm-hmm. from now, but you know, modern society sometimes values the near term more. And, okay. uh, and, and also like you, you have to have resources to think long-term. And if you're worried about making next week's rent payment or what are you going to do about childcare or, you know, how are you going to pay for your, your, your car payment? You know, telling someone to think about their long-term, like, you know, A1C trends is, is just uh, asking a lot. That is true. That is true. That, that's really interesting, as you said, right? Like, you know, there's no, there's no right incentive. Do you think content can change that? Uh, what uh, what I mean by that is like recently uh, there's a Stanford professor Andrew Huberman who has been putting out a lot of episodes about you know the effects of dopamine and all the mm-hmm. other neurochemicals that are in your body and how you can control them mm-hmm. and I see a lot of people you know understanding the science behind it and trying to sleep better you know yeah. uh, change that caffeine intake so do you think content can change how uh, clinical data is perceived? I think that kind of content can change for people who have the resources to act on it and have the luxury and privilege of Mm. thinking about those things. Um, You know, I I have a bit of a public health policy uh, passion. And I do worry a lot about the middle of the, the bell curve you know, mm. like you've got this tail that is super into the latest research and it will do everything they can to extend and, and improve the quality of life. And they'll have the resources to do that. And then you have the middle of the bell distribution that, you know, 
uh, does may not have the resources, may not have the motivation or the incentives um, or, you know, any number of reasons. Uh, and that's, so yes, the content can help, but uh, I think if you want to optimize for like humanity's outcomes, it's going to take more than figuring out like the best practice and the best kind of health like recipe. And it will need to address resources and incentives and culture. You know, like it's interesting when I, I lived overseas uh, in Europe for many, for four years and then came back to the States uh, a few years ago. And we were struck the moment we landed, uh, we forgot how, you know, we're watching like a football game in the commercials. And it's very much around more instant gratification, like more cheese, like more stuffed crust pizza with, you know, cinnamon desserts, you know, triple okay. treat and all this kind of thing. And we all know that that is not... Um, healthy <laughs> um but you know we do have a culture where the incentives are for um a lot of companies to profit from that type of uh lifestyle and it's 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 delicious in the near term i mean who wouldn't want that it's it's delicious um and it's considered and it's marketed as masculine and american and powerful and yes i want the triple treat or whatever it is you know and so um i i do think like yes there's science and medicine and technology but there's also incentives and resources and culture and you know a, a lot of a lot of people for good reason greatly value their freedom and they don't want to be told like to eat a kale salad with like you know, a very modest portion of chicken, maybe like that's yeah. not, that's not like we know from the pandemic that people don't want to be, many people don't want to be compelled to do anything, you know, and they, mm -hmm. and more, you know, put in a positive way, they greatly value their agency over their decisions. Um, I think the challenge is those decisions sometimes have implications for the, in, for the rest of the community and certainly right. for the healthcare system where, right. okay, who's bearing the costs of these decisions? Like if everybody, you know, had their own, let's say personal health account and they, they covered all their costs and for the rest of their life, then, okay, you could see that argument, but that's not, that's not really the way our healthcare system works. Mm, that is true. Yeah. And I, uh, taking this from like a product lens as a product leader who's working in this space. Mm -hmm. And as you said, like, you know, culture is a really hard thing to change. How do you, how do you go about like, you know, building products and, you know, trying to uh, give, give that incentive or that push for that culture change? Uh, how do you try to do that? Uh, you know, I, I would say product management of health technology and and my area is that I currently work in is is clinical products it is okay. extremely complicated uh mm -hmm. number 1 the clinician is a a medical professional most pms are not medical professionals okay. we have some mds on our team luckily but not mm -hmm. most of us are not 
So that's a hard user. It's not like building a product for, you know, your friends or yourself. It's it's a very unique kind of environment. Secondly, it's difficult because the user and the buyer and the influencers are all different. So you're kind of selling to lots of stakeholders. Right. The third thing is that this is all happening within a very complex industry where um, the financial incentives are not as clear-cut as, oh, do what's best for the patient. Um, I wish it were that way, but that's not kind of how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody wants to do that, but when you you kind of look at like, oh, let's say you're an insurance company and you typically cover, provide coverage for someone for a few years at a time before on typically they'll change employers and then change insurers. You know, even if you have the best intent, if you're an insurance company, like you're not rewarded for doing things that improve this person's health outcomes 10 years from now. You, you know, if you spend a lot of money on them in 2023 and they avoid a stroke or a heart attack or something worse in 2033, there's no change to your financial outcome. If anything, it's a, it's a, you lose. You pay a lot of costs up front. There's no way currently for you to recuperate uh, the yeah. savings 10 years from now. So um, PMing health clinical products is challenging for okay. users, so many stakeholders. Then you have, it's an enterprise sale, so that's complex. Mm. There's incumbents yeah. and other existing technologies. There's safety, there's Mm. privacy, security, basically everything that makes product development hard is represented in in clinical (laughs) health health product development and more. Um, But, you know, like that's also where care is provided. And if you really want to impact patients' outcomes in the long run, um, you know, you you, you have to have a story there or that's a hypothesis that we have that, you know, you want to... You want to help out and be useful even in that difficult environment because if you only zoomed out and 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 worked on co- pure consumer stuff, you you may not have the yeah. impact that you'd want to have, especially if you believe that most of the health quality losses happen not from the worried well, but from people with chronic conditions that require a lot of care right. team interventions and, and support. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, another question I had with respect to this is experimentation. Generally, as product managers, you have a lot of hypotheses yeah. and you want to experiment. Yeah. But when it comes to healthcare products, it's a very tricky situation because it's all related mm-hmm. to health of like consumers and like other yeah. stakeholders. So how does experimentation differ in like say building healthcare products? Oh boy. Um... <laughs> It's massively different in that, like, before joining Google Health, I worked at YouTube. And YouTube has a lot of users, and there's a lot of activity Mm -hmm. on it. So you could do an experiment with just a small percentage of users. And you say, oh, you know, we want to try out, like, a different visual sort of um, uh, approach to the like button. Or we want to try out... Uh, ordering comments in a way that emphasizes like uh, 
you know, subscribers over non-subscribers, whatever it is. And you can run that experiment. Nobody, you know, no, very few people will have like a massively, you know, uh, bad outcome, right? Because it's like worst case scenario, mm -hmm. like, oh, the yeah. new design for the like button wasn't good. We'll go back to the original. It, we're good to go. Exactly. Now you do, you, you want to try a new feature uh, on a health, cl clinical health product? Like you cannot, you cannot try things in the way that you could on a consumer product. You can develop new ideas and you can, you can do user experience research. You can do lab studies. You might even do, be able to do early pilots. But the idea of doing like, mm. oh, we'll put it behind a flag and, you know, 1% of users will right. get version A and the rest will get version B. Like, that's just, um, you know, not really a, a common option for clinical health products mm -hmm. um, because the error costs right. are very high. You know, like if you change yeah. up this thing and someone makes a decision because the design was flawed, uh, it's a much bigger deal than, oh, they couldn't find the like button because we moved it from the left-hand side to the right side and in YouTube or wherever. Exactly. Like, yeah. Nobody's going to you know, have a big change in their outcome because of that, they might watch a few less videos, but it's only yeah. 1% and it's a, it's a large pie. It's all good. Um, but you know, healthcare is higher stakes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That is very interesting. Wow. Like you deal with a lot of complex stuff. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing because, um, if you've, been in product management for a while and you're like hey i want to climb mount everest uh mm. go try and and <laughs> build a clinical <laughs> clinical technology product <laughs> um you know it's like starting a company you know it's, it, they're both very hard mm. uh and for the people who start True. companies in health tech like my god those are the oh, wow. <laughs> they're like level difficulty 100 you know right right <laughs> I now want to talk about, like you said, you previously worked at YouTube. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about that experience. But before that, you are currently a host of the Fireside PM podcast YouTube yeah. channel. So you are mm -hmm. a creator on YouTube and previously Correct. you led products at YouTube. Yeah. Do you think you figured out the YouTube game? How to you know, <laughs> uh, push videos you get so that you get maximum attention? <laughs> Clearly not, because nobody knows about the Fireside PM podcast but you and me. <laughs> um, you know, I would say that not just YouTube, but any kind of social media platform, they're, the thing that makes them amazing for viewers is that there's so many choices. But as yeah. a creator, it means like, you know, there are a lot of other people who are competing for the same eyeballs. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine any platform uh, being able, you know, they try their best to identify right. the content that's most interesting. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's possible that you could, you could wander around in the desert as a creator for a while before, you know, you, you kind of get discovered, as it were. Um, True. And which is why, like, as a, as a creator today, I always create content that, I am proud of and I enjoy making even if there's only 10 views 
because yeah. I just like the topic. And mm. if it then later on gets discovered and people find it useful, that's great. Um, but, you know, anybody who starts as a creator trying to be the next Mr. Beast is like, it's like <laughs> winning the lottery, you know, uh, or, or yeah. being like a, 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 an MVP for the NFL. Like you, you, the, the odds are, are small because, um, you know, there's definitely a power law here where the top creators generate, uh, you know, disproportionate amount of uh, viewer interest. And it's not because the platforms, mm. you know, that actually you could argue the platforms would prefer a broader spread, but that's just the way content True. works. You know, um, there's only a few yeah, right. movies uh, in the theaters that make most yeah. of the money each year. And I'm sure the studios mm. would love to spread it around a little more, but that's, you know, people like what they like and they tend to gravitate right. towards like number one or number two, and they don't want to see the number, number 10 uh, PM podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, I think where, you know, Fireside PM is probably like number 100, you know? And so, uh, but it's okay. Like, uh, if you play the long game. Yeah. You play the long game and you, and you like what you're doing. Um, yes. it, you know, things will, well, I'm sure will work out. Definitely. And like for the people listening to this episode, I think you should definitely check that channel out because I've learned so much from Tom's, uh, Tom's various videos. So yeah, I recommend anyone to check it out. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for the shout out. I I enjoy I I've been fortunate to uh invite a lot of guests on who have uh been in product management for sometimes 10, 20, 30 years and uh we're able to have a conversation about um some of the lessons they've learned and 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 talk in a way that um you know tries to highlight some uh, insights that that uh, that hopefully are useful to people, much like what you're what you're doing with your podcast, shit. So I appreciate uh, both of us right, yeah. doing our best here. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, talking about like creators, you've advocated for creators, uh, especially you know building tools for creators when you were mm -hmm. director of product at YouTube. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about like your thinking behind that like you know you wanted to you advocated for building tools creative tools like what is your thought process like yeah you know i think whenever i look back on the things that i've been a pm for the closer i can be to walking in the in the shoes of my users the better pm intuition mm -hmm. i tend to have and so um you know, when I joined the the YouTube team and was a PM lead for like our core creator platform, I I had the opportunity and I felt like I was I I really needed to create a few channels, and um, you just learn so much from doing it that you wouldn't otherwise get if you rely entirely on secondary research or on just usage logs and things like that. Uh, or even, um, you know, talking to a lot of users, which we certainly do. But like, as an example, you know, having to go through the pain of editing a video for, for a video on demand, or yeah. having to go through the process of finishing your live stream and then looking at the analytics and trying to figure out what's going on or having to go through engaging in the comments or 
um, you know, getting mixed feedback in the comments. Like that's something that you can intellectually understand, but if you if you've not done it, or even like the difficulty of getting your first hundred subscribers, like I, I still remember meetings where people were like, oh, well, you just share it out on Facebook and you get your first hundred. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> that is not how it's much harder. <laughs> yes. So, um, so, you know, I think my philosophy at YouTube was to, to try and eat as much of the dog food as I could so that I could experience right. it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I find that that's true in all the products I worked on. Um, you know, even now with mm. my health stuff, I try and, um, you know, put myself in the shoes of the user and, and go through their, their journeys, uh, and, and try and live it as much as I can. It's certainly harder. <clears throat> so if you're working mm. on an area where you can be a user, like as an example, I previously worked in, uh, Google AdWords. And my wife was a realtor at the time and I would manage, you know, SEM campaigns for her. And I think mm -hmm. it gave me a perspective around um, where we could make the product better that uh, I didn't, I wouldn't have had if I didn't have that kind of co those cockpit hours, if you will. Right, right, right. That's really interesting. Uh, talking about, again, the YouTube journey and like mm -hmm. how you dog fed yourself with respect to mm -hmm. understanding the product can mm -hmm. you share any experience on how like you'd uh, you know being in the game and like producing content help you build some tool or some product on youtube um yeah so one thing that often came up from user feedback and research was the um desire for more real-time analytics and you know up to the second ideally on uh, impressions or views or you know whatever likes or comments or whatever and internally I think we always um, had to kind of think about how to interpret that that request because on the one hand you could say hey you know, a creator should not be so twitchy, like in terms of like, they shouldn't ha respond so quickly to just any little piece of data because it's statistically insignificant sometimes, or, you know, there's natural, natural fluctuations. And you'd hear cases where people were taking down their video immediately if it wasn't getting like a certain click-through rate or whatever. And so you can understand why there was a perspective of like, no, we, and the other thing is like, it's, it's uh, technically very expensive and challenging to offer a wide variety of real-time data to every creator on the platform. So you can understand why like there's a, a general feeling of like, hey, you know, I don't know if we should do this uh, or whether this should be a high priority for all the things that we can do for creators. However, when you have yourself spent many, many hours producing content uh, for a given video, and then you upload it, and then you yourself are finding yourself staring at that analytics tab, looking at <laughs> data as it's coming in by the second, you kind of understand 
in a level why people want that. And it's because like, hey, I want to make sure nothing went way off. Nothing went wrong. Did I screw up the tags or the title or is my thumbnail just completely not resonating? Or did I, you know, did I publish it in a way that I, you know, accidentally I publish it as a private video or whatever, you know, like you're just, or, hey, I, I wanted to promote it on Twitter and I want to see if there's with any follow through, there's like a million legitimate, completely reasonable uh, rationale for why you want more real-time data. And it's just one of those things that may not be obvious in a conference room of a large company if you, if you don't go out of your way to kind of uh, walk in the shoes of that user. And so, um, you know, I think that's an example where you can, you have to find this balance between thinking about the overall platform and understanding what you want users to do, but also uh, informing it and pressure testing it with the reality of what a user experiences. And their their worldview is much broader than your product. Like you're not the only thing in their world. So to the extent that you can walk in their shoes a little bit more and see like, oh, okay, you know, they're trying to do all these other things and, you know, they're not like uh, 24-7, 365 days a year, YouTube only. They, they, they have other things going on in their life. They have other elements of their content strategy. You know, we need to kind of think about how all of these fit together. So, you know, I think that would be one example where, you know, what, what's obvious uh, with, at one level uh, right. can be really enhanced by going right. a little deeper into the customer's experience. Right. Yeah. I think like you can, you understand a lot more context if you use the yeah. tools yourself, otherwise you just, uh, you're, you just, are focused on just the product itself. That is very true. And Tom, as a creator yourself, uh, you've seen that accessibility to creating content on social has become easier and especially Mm -hmm. with like short form content people are okay with you know just making content on their phones and uploading it Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about like uh, people are saying that you know the quality of content is getting diluted there's too much more content like online uh, which is you know not that great quality like what are your thoughts about this um it's definitely a, uh, I think it first, I would say it reflects what audiences want. So, uh, you know, people have made that argument for a long time, even before short form video where they, you know, when YouTube first came Mm -hmm. out, they were like, Oh, Mm -hmm. this is the depth, the depth of high quality content. And, you know, um, you know, so uh, this has happened. This is a trend that's been happening, like more accessible, more kind of digestible, bite-sized content. Like we've been, you know, Twitter is an example where people are like, oh, right. you know, don't, people aren't going to read like the New York Times anymore. It's just these little short tweets. And I think the reality is two things. One, there's a there's a place for many types of content depending on the audience and the what the audience wants at this moment. And then I think the second thing is like it is tempting to romanticize like the third, you know, the 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 ten page New Yorker article uh, 
but mm. like that isn't um it's not what the the viewers want uh and as much as i love watching like long documentaries like i get it that my kids prefer these short videos for the most part and uh i think that's just the reality and as a creator you got to figure out well what do you what do you want to create like i i give you fireside podcast pm podcast as an example like i'm not doing short form video i get that it's a massive trend but it's mm. just not the type of content that i enjoy making now that's a trade off i'm making where i could probably get more mm. audience by going with like that that kind of emerging category um but i also feel like from a creator's point of view like you've got to know who you are and i'm a long form conversation guy i am not a right. 30 second like snappy video guy i i wish you know i wish i had that capability that's just not my strength um and so you know you kind of got to go with with what you know you're really kind of resonates with with who you are and you know if it's if it's not the the hottest trend uh, out there like that's not the end of the world because you know if you're bad at it you're not going to get a ton of views anyway so you might as well yeah, that is focus on what you <laughs> think you can be you know better at yep yep yeah another perspective i've generally thought about this is like as time progresses like more more people are coming on to the internet especially from the developing countries mm -hmm. so that means like even though there's more content there are more people to consume that content so there's always that balance that's how i think about it yeah i mean i think the audience for content keeps growing um and not only in new markets but there's just more people every day that even in developed markets are are kind of internet savvy and and connected all the time yeah and so um maybe one of the things for creators is we all dream of being the next like joe rogan or mr beast or yeah. whatever the hot <laughs> kind of creators are I, i've been out of out of the the mainstream game for a while um but one of the most amazing things like i as a viewer uh subscribe to a lot of channels that quote unquote only have a few thousand subs but i love what they're doing right. and um mm. that kind of deep connection to a small very focused audience uh is is very rich and very kind of um impactful uh financially it's a different story for sure than right. like you'd you'd yeah. rather have the finances of mr beast but you know like not everybody can be Mr. Beast. Not everybody's going to be Tom Cruise. Like, it's just, it's okay. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. And uh, coming back to the product lens, you build mm -hmm. products at YouTube, which mm -hmm. serves like billions of users. Mm -hmm. What is that experience of like building such kind of products? Like, does it naturally like make you become more risk averse like because it impacts billions of users how how did you go about it yeah so my team focused on products for creators so it indirectly right. touched billions of users but um we didn't have billions of creators we had a lot of them though and they certainly their right. audience met, numbered in the billions um but your question uh stands that 
because you're operating at such a large scale, um, you do tend to pay very special attention to risk mitigation and, you know, well, what could go wrong? And it's different than in a startup or a smaller company because, it, you know, you make a mistake in a startup. Most people don't even know the startup exists. It's no big deal. Mm. You know, you, you kind of make a, a mistake at YouTube, like people will, will notice and it could have yes. implications. So, you yeah. know, certainly when I was there, we had a lot of changes around how we decide what ad, what videos are monetizable, what ads are appropriate, what content is appropriate for what advertisers or, or her advertising in general. And you've those are hard, hard uh, pro product problems to navigate because you're you're effectively, you know, trading off. Uh, various stakeholders, and it's hard to make okay. everybody happy all of the time. Impossible, really. Um, and it, and so you just have to be really careful about the implications of what you do. So, yeah, for us, like before we launched anything, there would be a very thorough review process, and mm. people way above your your individual pay grade would have to sign off on it, and. Okay. You know, part of it is, especially some early career PMs, they, they bristle a little bit about that. They're like, hey, you know, I'm the mini CEO of my feature. And it's like, yeah, you are, but you're not the CEO of YouTube. And yeah. <laughs> if your feature creates a storm of, uh, you know, implications for YouTube, like you're not the one that's going to be accountable. Someone else above you is going to be. So they're going to want to know what the heck you're doing. And they're going to want to sign off Dang. on it. Um, and so there is a trade-off there as a PM. Like when you work at these massive businesses, you do lose velocity, but you also gain impact. Like, you know, on my team, Dang. like we made major changes to the entire creator experience, the upload flow, the analytics, the channel management, and, you know, uh, billions of people consume content from our users that yeah. uh, you know benefited from those improvements, and so it's harder to, to do have that kind of impact in a smaller company. Right. But at the same time, like you know, we might launch things at you know a third of the velocity of mm. uh, you know some startup that's just like slinging code every every day and just trying right. all <laughs> kinds of stuff. Like you just can't you can't go fast and break things when you operate at at, at that scale. I mean, you could, but it would be very risky. True, true, very true. And you spoke about like early career PMs thinking that they're like the mini CEOs of the product. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's always been that interesting debate where like some people say that uh, if you say that you're a CEO of a product, that means you don't know what product management is. But you had an interesting take where you, because you've been a founder and a product leader. So what is your take on this? Uh, do you think product managers are CEOs of the product or like what is what are your thoughts here? Uh, they are the closest thing to the CEO of a feature or a product mm -hmm. that you can have, but they're not the CEO because the CEO ultimately has the authority to make the calls uh, almost unilaterally. 
I, you know, of course they would prefer to do that rarely, but they have that final say. And, you know, there are examples where you may escalate to the board of directors, but generally the CEO is kind of the final word. And the PM uh, may have the, the final recommendation or they may, they may have the last, uh, they may be the one to summarize all of the options. But certainly as you go to a bigger company, like if it's a big call, like, oh, we want to, um, we want to change the requirements around thumbnails for uploads. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the PM for the upload flow. If it's going to have implications on all creators, and then it's going to have implications on all viewers. Like right. there's going to be other people that are going to need to have a say there. And they may not be driving it, but they're going to have veto power. Right. And so, you know, I would think of PMs as um, you are, you're kind of like, uh, you're a leader and you are expected to drive consensus and help the organization make hard calls. But they're not going to just do what you say because you're the smart PM. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you've got to bring people along. And that's true in life, right. you know, in general. Like nobody really <laughs> single handedly runs things. So, um, you know, I think a lot of early career PMs, they're attracted to the profession or the function because they, they see rightly that PMs have a lot of influence and are involved in most major decisions. And they can uh, often drive the decision-making process, but they are part of a, a group of people that make the, the hardest calls. And, and that's part yeah. of you know, what we get paid to do is to bring along engineering mm -hmm. and marketing and business leadership and execs and and understand that we've thought about this and looked at the alternatives and compared them and have a recommendation and an execution plan and we see it through like you know that sounds like ceo in to me in many ways but i think the the difference or the nuance is that a lot of people hear oh i'm the mini ceo and they think i'm the decider and right. you know um you 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 get accountable for the results and it's your fault if it doesn't go well but you don't make all the calls <laughs> yeah <laughs> you have the responsibility but you don't have the authority i think that's the way yep. to go about it <laughs> yep yep i think that's accurate um and any authority that you do have is earned and it's through influence mm -hmm. more than authority right and that influence comes from your competence and track record and relationships right. and trust that you've built one-on-one -on -one with a lot of key stakeholders. True, very true, very true. And Tom, on a light note, I, I wanted—I was very curious about this. Are you a nature lover? Do you love nature? I do. I do love nature. Yes, I love hiking. <laughs> the reason I, I asked is yeah, right. No, the reason I asked was because when I went through your website, you had like a photo where you shot it in Kenya and you were, ah. you disc, you provided a deep thought related to it. So I thought you would be like a nature lover and a deep thinker. So that's why I asked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, 
I love the beauty of nature, the kind of homeostasis of like um, ecosystems, and um, you know, I I marvel at uh, at the environment and wildlife and organisms and how symbiotic um, things can be, and I. I think it does in some ways translate to success in product management because it, I think great product managers often have a much longer term view and they're able mm -hmm. to play the long game and see the long game. And a lot of product managers who might not reach their full potential are product managers who are very fixated on this next promotion or this next launch okay. or this next meeting. And what happens is you end up over kind of indexing on these smaller things and you're, it makes it harder for you to make compromises or to kind of pick your battles and okay. you end up becoming like that PM that's like, all about them and their, 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 you know, their promo this period and, or their, their, their okay. perf review, you know, this, this quarter. And that makes it harder for you to have influence and build trust and earn it because then everybody's like, oh, well, that's Tom. He's just out for himself and he just wants to get okay. this launch under his belt kind of thing. Whereas if you can play the longer game, you can try and figure out, well, what's best for the team, what's best for the company in the long run. Uh, you do have to trust that the system will reward you for that. But I think that uh, it generally will and you'll be more effective. And so, you know, I see that also true with nature that you can't force mm. it. You know, you've got to understand like the flow of the system and, uh, right. and, and, you know, uh, especially if you're working in a hard area uh, and you don't have market fit yet, uh, you, you really do have to bring a calm, centered, best version of yourself. Um, and if okay. you're a PM that's really wound tight, um, and I've been that PM in the past, uh, I'm not as effective. I don't think I'm as effective when I'm in that mode as I am when I care deeply and I'm leaned in, but I'm also thinking okay. about, okay, well, what's the best thing for the business multiple years out? And how do I, how do I facilitate that versus like, how do I get as many points and on board for myself this, this month? Right. Very interesting. Yeah. And do you think like uh, your love for nature has helped you be more creative, especially like while building products and doing your work? You know, I would say, um, yes. And I don't think it's unique to my love for nature. Like I don't think every PM out there needs okay. to suddenly, you know, be a huge natural lover, <laughs> although I think it'd be great. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what I would say <laughs> is that it is valuable to have a variety of interests and pursuits. So right. as an example, like the Fireside PM podcast is not part of my day job. It's my thing. Um, this like saltwater aquarium behind me requires a massive amount of due diligence <laughs> <laughs> but because of that, when I come to work on Monday morning, I'm completely recharged, refreshed, 
and and I've been in a different mode where seven days a week, all I think about are my work projects. And what I found is that my quality of thinking, my judgment, my patience, my ability to manage my emotions is actually deteriorated if I don't have a sufficient diversification of life interests. And um, it's a little bit counterintuitive because you, you, you might think like, oh, well, the people that are 24-7 on their job, they're just going to be like, go, go, go. And, and I think maybe very earlier in your career, if you're like an analyst at an investment bank or something like that might work. But if you're a PM that's, that's on the hook for making big bets and navigating co- complexities over long periods of time, and building trust around complex organizations, um, I think it really is helpful for you to be a healthy person, uh, right. and 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 you know think about the whole health and stimulate your mind in ways that uh, you know give you more energy during the week. Right, right. That is. Very and for cool. me, that's like taking a hike and um, observing some wildlife or caring for some very kind of delicate coral in my aquarium or, you know, whatever it is, or volunteering at a community college or helping out with my kids high school, like all of those things I enjoy doing, but I also think it makes me a better professional when I come to work because I'm, I'm like energized. I've, it's it's sort of like having a varied diet. Like you don't want to just eat the same food all every meal all day long like you you want to have a variety and it, it'll make you a more resilient and kind of creative person in my opinion no that, that's very true and i was I, I was fascinated you said you use the word a healthy person because when you think about health people just think the physical aspects but there's all, also the mental and emotional aspects oh, that yeah. you generally forget to take care of oh absolutely like um uh, you know, I was actually coaching someone uh, a few days ago and a very capable, super accomplished individual. And But there was something that happened uh, to her where she felt that, you know, she wasn't given a, a, the appropriate level of credit for some work that she did and another team kind of took credit for for the work that she did. And it was amazing how, and we had been talking about this uh, this event for many weeks now. And I, you know, I had to observe that this injustice, uh, while it's, let's just stipulate that it did happen and it was not fair. It is consuming so much energy from you that it's actually making it harder for you to perform now. And, there's nothing you can do about it. Like that credit was given. Like I suppose you could go back in time or you could relitigate it. That probably not going to end up like working out very well. But it is one of those things where a sense of calm, of reflection, of being present. And uh, it, it sounds like new age and kumbaya, but I really do feel like when you go to meetings and you're in these like, high stakes debates about product strategy, you just, I just invite everybody to observe everyone's energy 
And you'll see some people are really emotional and passionate to a fault. Right. And it, it clouds their vision. It also makes it harder for them to build consensus. And then there are some people who are definitely checked in and they care and they're trying to think about things holistically and be data-driven and inclusive. And, and they're able to do that because they're bringing a certain energy and presence to the meeting that, um, that they actually worked hard to get. And, uh, and we shouldn't take that for granted. That is for sure. Yeah. And speaking about coaching, like you coach a lot of people at Google and externally, mm -hmm. what I'm really curious about is like, why do you think people require coaching? Because for me, like a couple of years ago, I always thought like, Hey, like when you're out of college, you know, you, you've learned everything. Like, uh, like it felt like taking coaching as a sign of weakness as compared mm. to like, Oh, this is something that's going to help me. I'd love to know, like, yeah. why is coaching so important? Yeah. Um, I benefit from coaching myself as well as providing coaching services. And my belief is that absent having a coach, um, you're, your access to a safe space and sounding board uh, is very limited. Like in theory, in theory, your manager can play this role. And they often do to some extent. But many times we're trying to figure out, well, how do I manage up better? Or my manager's not happy with certain things. And uh, I want to be able to talk about this in a completely uh, safe and unencumbered way, you can't. You you have to be really careful with your conversations mm. with your manager, right? Yes. Um, or most managers, like you know, the great managers will give you a lot of latitude, and they'll try and kind of think about the long game and understand that you know people are human and they have different perspectives. But you know that's that's hard. Um, and then some people say like, well, but you have your spouse or your significant other, or your, or your, your best friend, they may not be in this role. Uh, they may not really understand kind of the, the, the circumstances and complexity of what you're kind of managing through. Or, you know, uh, they may have biases about you or whatever. So I think a great coach is, and then some people will look at mentors, and mentors are are fantastic because they can share a lot of experiences, but they're not necessarily focused on helping you process information yourself. They're, they're more around like, this is what I did. This is what I've learned. Now here it is, like go use it. And okay. I think what a great coach does is kind of like helps you go on this process of co-discovery uh, mm. to kind of reflect a little bit. And right. you, you know, they really got, they're, they're kind of probing, they're nudging, they're giving you some space. They are, um, they're kind of, uh, uh, helping you with some introspection and reflection. And that's just, um, it's just hard to get that unless you have a dedicated time and space in person. People say right. similarly about, um, trainers, like personal trainers for fitness, 
oh, why do I need a trainer? I can go on YouTube and find out what are the best exercises for someone exactly with my goals. And, you know, there's a certain sense of trust and um, routine, but also personalization that you can get with a coach. Right. So I'm a big fan of, of working with coaches. I mean, you, you have to, uh, you have to put time in to figure out like who's the right kind of coach for you. And sometimes you have to kind of, uh, shop around a little bit and, and meet a lot of people. And, um, but I, I definitely think that it can be really valuable because absent that you're on, you kind of feel like many people feel like they're on their own and they don't need to be, you know? Um, so the, the reality is that it does require time from the coach and, um, uh, sustained kind of effort and so it's hard to get that service for free because people's yeah, time is exactly. valuable so yeah. then you're like oh wow i gotta i gotta invest money in a coach and a lot of people like you know may not have that discretionary budget available um Today. but you know i think uh if done well it can pay it pay for itself 10 sometimes 100 times over right definitely yeah I, yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around like understanding why coaching is required. So this was really insightful. Thank you for that. Yeah. And you know, you're not. Yeah, I think you're. Are, oh, I'll just say, share one last thing and then we can wrap up. You're not. Sure. You should not expect to work with a coach and have the coach say something and for you to be like, oh, my God, I have never that <laughs> concept have never entered my mind. But it's more like if you have a good session with the coach, there's these moments where you're reflecting on like, hmm, why did I feel that way when right. this meeting happened? And mm. oh, well, maybe it's because I have some concerns about this or that. And you just kind of unpack things. And it's giving yourself time and having someone to kind of bounce off of to to facilitate that conversation. And most of the insights are already within you, but they are kind of like sometimes under layers of uh, urgent but not important activity. And, you know, a coach should try and help you get to the uh, important stuff. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. But uh, I, I I wish we could have discussed, you know, further and talk about more <laughs> topics, but I think we are way over time. So thank you so much, Tom. And before we end, uh, a last piece of advice for people in these anxious situations who are like, you know, getting laid off or are just mm -hmm. anxious in their current workplace, what advice would you give them? Okay. So the first thing is if you are in, uh, I, if you're in a role now and you're anxious about, well, I'm not sure if the role's going to be around anymore. I would say now is a time to focus on nailing the fundamentals. So, um, you know, be the best performer that you can be. And it's definitely a change of pace from 2022, early 22, and certainly late 21, where everybody was like, what can my manager and company do for me to keep me? And you just need, it's, it's uh, the pendulum has swung and you need to be thinking about what can I do for my manager <laughs> Right. <laughs> and for my company so that yes. I'm invaluable, you know? Uh, so, you know, the good news is that's in your control. You, mm. you can be probably a much better PM than you've ever been. 
And yeah. if you are, like, you'll be less likely to, to, you know, be at risk of being, you know, kind of downsized. I mean, nothing's guaranteed. Now, if you're already out of work because you were, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, part of a restructuring, then my advice would be uh, be willing to take two steps back to, uh, to, to kind of have in the long run three steps forward. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I, I do talk to some people who are like, Hey, I was a group product manager at such and such, or I was a senior product manager at such and such. So I'm not going to consider anything beneath that for my next mm -hmm. role, even though, you know, I'm in between jobs. And my advice would be if you find the right company, the right manager, and you're excited about the opportunity, just get on the rocket ship, you know, or get on the, get on the bus <laughs> and uh, you could always change seats later and you can move up as your performance kind of will demonstrate. But um, I see a lot of people who hold out for a certain seniority or compensation and then they end up going to companies that might be willing to give them that comp and seniority, but they're usually for a reason. Maybe the company has a lot of challenges. Maybe the leadership team is not that strong. Maybe the right. business model is not really dialed in yet. And so they end up kind of in a place where you're, you've got like a better seat, but it's on a really troubled bus. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, those would be my two things that I would share with people. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I think it's a rough time, but hopefully things get uh, better soon. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I, I graduated from business school in 03 and I was looking for internships oh, at wow. the end of 01 and it was a terrible time. Uh, and then we went through 2008, the whole financial uh, crisis and the world economy was, you know, all the banks were shutting down yeah. and going bankrupt and Lehman Brothers and everything. Um, the world will continue to revolve on its axis and, and economies have ups and downs and we're in a, a right. you know, a, a bit of a down point now, but it will come back, you know, whether it comes yeah. back in a year or a quarter or two years, who knows, but mm -hmm. it'll be fine. And ultimately like just focus on solving problems for your company and being reliable and effective and a, a great partner and collaborate well and always be learning and you know you're you're gonna be fine yeah definitely yeah i think on that note we can end this conversation thank you so much tom i had a lot of fun talking to you i hope you do as well <laughs> oh it was a pleasure and and uh thank you for having me on the show Dixit. i i really enjoyed the conversation and and hope that we can uh, reconnect in the future <laughs> <laughs>